0: On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about how much the government pays on consultants, the federal government. You will want to sit down. This number is astounding. Where is the money going? We're going to talk about game seven of the Leafs and Canadians. Now, by the time you listen to this podcast, the game may be over. So this may be a historic document, but you can look back and hear what we were talking about before the game and see whether it still applies. And automated cars. We're supposed to all be driving automated cars, or having them driving us by now, aren't we? Where are they? Well, we'll talk about
1: it today on the Scott Bradley Show on nine hundred chml.
0: Everybody listening, I'm guessing, has worked hard to make their money, and then when you hear another example of government spending, it, to me, it's just it's it's almost insulting. And here here's where we are right now. The government, according to a government, its own estimate, a government estimate of what it's going to spend on consultants fees, not on staff, not on projects, not on infrastructure, on consultants fees. Consultants the government has hired to come in and help them out is going to be $17.7 billion next year. $17.7 billion for consultants. Meanwhile, we have roughly 380,000 federal civil servants in this country. So you're telling me that out of 380,000 people, we don't have enough of them with brains to do some of the work and do some of the services that consultants have to do? Come on. I want to bring in Stephen LeDrew. He is the former president of the Liberal Party of Canada. He is a commentator. He is the host of the Three Minute Interview, which you can find on his website and on YouTube. Stephen, how are you tonight?
2: I'm very, very well, but probably like most of your listeners, I'm very distressed at what you're just talking about, the huge expenses coming out of Ottawa, and very little to show for it.
0: Well, let, before we get into the, the dollars, let's start with the other number that really struck me there. 380,000 federal civil civil servants sounds to me to be an astonishingly high number. Yeah,
2: yeah. No, no, you're absolutely right. It, it is, it, it's it's unbelievable, but it's just, Scott, it's, it's indicative of what we have in Canada. We have a rogue government. Parliament, as most of your listeners know, is not sitting. It's this sort of uh, Zoom Sitting and, you know, the prime minister doesn't answer questions, doesn't show up. Ministers don't show up. They don't show up to parliamentary committees. We have a government which is completely out of control. And but for a few shows like yours, uh, most people have no idea of it. And I was looking at the polls this morning and uh, liberals could be having another majority should there be another election, which is astonishing to me because this government hasn't done well on all fronts. And then to add injury to insult on this one, you're talking about the number of civil servants, the incompetence of the civil servants, and then adding on to that, the, the uh, outsourcing of all these jobs to the tune of billions and billions of dollars. I mean, it's just it's unbelievable what's going on in Ottawa, and it is a rogue government. It's out of control.
0: Well, look, the number, the other thing about the 380,000 fed, now keep in mind, that's federal civil servants, not counting here in Hamilton. I think it's 6,500 municipal municipal civil servants in Ontario has hundreds of thousands. I mean, it's just, it's tens of thousands, I shouldn't say hundreds of thousands, but um, and and we're going up in federal civil servants, we're going up by 10,000 every year since 2015. Are you feeling like you're getting 10,000 civil servants worth of better civil service every year?
2: Well, what's happening is it's indicative of of what's happening in in many Western democracies, but more so in Canada, because Canadians are not vigilant about this, or certainly not vigilant enough, is that every election, whether it be municipal, provincial, or federal, Scott, you and I know this, your listeners know this, politicians say, elect me, vote for me, elect me, and I will do more for you. I will give you more services. I will do more for you. And they're buying votes. We saw that the other day with the federal Trudeau uh, program, $5,000 $5,000 per homeowner to refit your home. People are constantly being bought, and unfortunately, we get suckered into this, and it's not free. It's not free. And so, we have every level of government with more municipal, more sorry, civil servants to administer these programs and to dole out the money. And it's a shambles. And when you look at the whole figures, as you just did, of all three levels of government together, pretty soon, the only people who are going to be supporting this huge, huge government services and bureaucracy are going to be uh, just a few people who are working as as service people and 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 you know restaurant people and some farmers. And it's just going to be. It's a. It's a. It's a, We are turning into uh, a banana republic. It's, it's terrible.
0: Well, and, and it's it's interesting you mentioned, and I wasn't gonna get into this, but you mentioned that five thousand dollar homeowner thing that you can do. People can find out about this. You can get up to five thousand dollars for climate helping home repairs, windows and things like that. Uh, but it's interesting that they said we want to hire two thousand new people to be the inspector. Well, there's another two thousand that we're gonna bring in. And and you know, they're not I, I'm pretty sure that if they're working for the government, they're not gonna make minimum wage. Nobody for the government ever makes minimum wage. And so, uh, you know, again, I'm looking at this thing. There's your employees, 380,000 federal civil servants. All I'm guessing or know are making pretty good money.
1: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Stephen, what are we getting for $17.7 billion?
2: (laughs) I'm so sorry, Scott. I can't answer that. I just can't answer. But what happens, and I've seen many governments up close, is that you you have a specific job. You don't have the talent or the brain power to deal with it in the government. You hire an outside consultancy to do it, and then the outside consultancy says, "Well, you hired us for six months, but it's going to take nine months, and so fine, we go on for the nine months, and then if it works out." Uh, next year the consultants come along and they say, well, you know, what other projects do you have? And so they become, um, well, they, they, get, they be, it's like drugs. They become hooked onto the government, and the government civil servants become hooked on the consultants because they say, well, that was pretty neat, and we don't have to do the work, and we hire someone else to do it. They get paid, and uh, we just manage them. So it is, it's, um, it is a situation where they are both Reliant on each other, and then they—it uh, just continues on and on. So there's no, as you pointed out so well, it just keeps going higher and higher every year, and um, and there's no there's no breaks on it. There's no. But Stephen, okay. And I said the outset because we have a rogue government. This government is out
0: of control. We said a moment ago before the break that there are three hundred eighty thousand uh, dollars, three hundred eighty thousand federal civil servants. <laughs> if those three hundred eighty thousand people are incapable and we need to hire $17.7 billion worth of consultants. If the federal civil servants can't do the job, why are we paying them? Let's just have the consultants. Why, why are we doubling here? Why, why are we hiring people to do work that they don't seem to be capable of doing, yet we're going to pay them handsomely? Because you don't ever get unhired or fired or dehired
2: in Ottawa or any of the federal government offices. Like, it just doesn't happen. Once you are there, it is a lottery for life. You hear these lotteries and say you get $1,000 a week for life if you win. Well, you get that every time you're, somebody's hired by the federal government. I mean, it's just, we, are, we are in a very difficult situation in Canada as far as the government goes. And the federal government's the worst, but the other governments are, are similar in vain. I mean, there's, some, I agree. there's no control on it. And, uh, and what bothers me, as so I said, is, you know, aside from shows like yours and some other shows, the mainstream media does not deal with it. And I was in a conversation with someone the other day, and I said, you know, we talked about an issue, and they said, well, I didn't know anything about that. And I said, well, because you only watch the mainstream media, TV or, you know, these huge radio stations, and they don't talk about this. Why? Because they're paid for by the federal government. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an insidious situation, and it's one that's getting worse in Canada, and yet you see the polls, Scott, where people are saying, oh, well, we're going to vote you know, Trudeau back in. I mean, Trudeau... As um, well, I was just reading a column by John Iverson in the Globe Mail, where Trudeau was talking about you can't say anything about China because then you're going to be a racist. Well, that's just baloney. And he said, you know, Trudeau is just not up to the job. Finally, some people are starting to realize it's not—it's
0: you know—that's true. And, 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 but it's all governments, and it's because I think, and maybe Trudeau is worse. I don't know, but it's all governments. And it's because I, I believe anyway, that once people get into government and they don't, it's not their money, they're very happy to spend. I mean, look, if, if you were a, a manager in an office who was thinking of hiring a consultant and it was your money. Or oh. And not even your money, because these are extraordinary amounts. But let's say you were doing home repairs, and we had the builder there, but you said, well, I want to bring in a consultant to really see, but it's going to cost an extra $2,000 to do that. <laughs> you would not hire that consultant. You'd probably take the word of the builder. But yep. it, But that's their money. That's when it's their money. When it's not your money, sure, let's spend it. Yep, you're absolutely right. And, and there are no controls on this, because we are
2: not having public debates about it. We are not having... Uh, Parliament, and uh, but you know you, you just made a point, Scott. Well, all governments are, are in a similar situation. Ford, Ford was elected to stop this, and he's been premier for what three years now. It's just gotten worse. Yes, as you allow, COVID has uh, has ruined the best plans. But I mean, once you get into government, doesn't seem to me that no matter what your platform is when you got elected, you get into government. And you change pretty fast. So I think Ford is, is the best
0: example. Sure. No. Because nobody likes having programs cut. If you cut programs, you're killing children and the elderly. That's, that's the, it's, it's a default position that anything that's cut kills people. And so yeah. governments get into power and say, we're not going to do it. I, I wanted to say, by the way, we got to run, unfortunately. I, I'm no mathematician. But I looked into what $17.7 billion is. You could hire 177,000 people and pay them $100,000 a year. That's how much money we're spending on consultants. And it's just, staggering.
2: A lot of those consultants are friends of Trudeau and his friends. It's just, it's just an insidious situation. And uh, everybody is, uh, is buttering everybody else's toast.
0: But Except I guess when we're spending three hundred or whatever it is, four hundred billion dollars a year to run, you know, what's seventeen billion in there just tucked away? I mean, I, it's amazing. <laughs> it, it is amazing. Uh, you, can Stephen's, you can find Stevens. You can find Stevens' columns uh, and his videos. Go look at his videos. Uh, go either go to stevenladru.ca or go on YouTube and look for the three-minute interview. They're great. Stephen, listen, we got to run, unfortunately, but I really appreciate you doing this tonight. Thanks for your time. Always a pleasure, Scott. Cheers.
1: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Oh
0: boy. If the Maple Leafs lose today, the post-mortem is going to be like CSI. They would never have done an episode of CSI on this one because it would be too rough. It would be too rough and too many swear words and too much of all the rest. If the Leafs somehow lose tonight to the Canadians in game seven. <sighs> I don't even know where to start on this one. Uh, let me bring in Kevin Shea. He is hes a good friend of ours. He's a good friend of the show. He is an author. He is, uh, he's written, I think it's 21 books now. Voices in Blue and White, Pride and Passion for the Maple Leafs is his last one. Uh, mo- Actually, I should say his most recent one, although depending on what happens tonight, it might be his last one. He may give up writing after this one. <laughs> um, Kevin, how are you tonight? I'm doing well, Scott. How are you? Well, you know, I'm doing fine and, I- and I- I'm glad you say you're doing well. Uh, maybe we'll check in with you again at about 1030 and see... Uh, You know, okay. so here's the thing. I I, I think most fans right now, Leaf fans, would feel as they're going into this game, probably feel like it's going to be a miracle if the Leafs win because they've just prepared themselves emotionally for what seems like an inevitability, doesn't it? I mean, based on past recent history, this seems like we've been down this path before.
3: Leaf fans have had to gird their loins for so long, and, and, and so you, you expect the unexpected. You hope for the best, but are prepared for the worst. You try to, uh, to check your emotions and, and keep them at somewhat of a, a decent keel. But it's, it's an anxious time. It's an exciting time. And here
0: we go, Scott. Okay. So, yeah, and, and I love the gird their loins. Uh, it's probably more than their loins, but I'm sure their loins are uh, well girded right now. <laughs> Okay, Kevin, you are the expert. You have written multiple books on the Maple Leafs and on hockey. How does this, now they they may win, but even if they win, they've gone to game seven. It's cost them now Jake Muzzin, who's out with an injury that he wouldn't have had if they'd finished it when they should have. How does this always happen to the Leafs? I don't know. You know, we hear about the
3: curse of the Leafs and, and Harold Ballard's role and Larry Hillman back in the in the 1960s and you know I don't know what it is there just seems to be something about them you know who are you is is a good question who are we are we going to be able to close tonight or is it one more year of well maybe next year I mean the pundits are already starting to blame different players on the team in preparation for the result of the game we haven't even had the puck drop yet so we'll hope for the best. But prepare for the worst as i mentioned
0: yeah my colleague you've thrown out a couple the harold ballard and others my colleague steve milton uh he puts it on the curse of frank Mahovlich. that since frank Mahovlich was traded things have never gone right for the leafs so who, who knows if that's the uh if that's the answer here but this is we heard as you said last year the year before the year before that going back to the boston series going back before then we heard okay, we just got to get different people in here. Now we've got all these experienced guys. We've got these guys who have been through the wars. Different people are wearing the Maple Leaf sweater now. So it's going to be different. And yet it feels very much like, doesn't matter who's wearing the sweater. You put the sweater on and that bad juju seems to fall on you. (laughs) Well, there's something about the
3: franchise that way, but you're right. The Shanna plan has been in, in effect now for I think it's seven years. Some of these players... Are no longer fledglings. You know, they're, they're five years into their careers. They're, they've hit their peak. We saw what happened during the regular season with, with Marner and Matthews. Riley's had some good seasons as well. Tavares before his, his injury was, was playing well. And yet, here we are now teams know how to play the leafs it seems but you should be able to cut loose from that and and be able to uh, to get uh, get the goals that you are expecting and yet for some reason whether they tighten up or whether the pressure is too much or god knows what it's the juju that you mentioned something goes wrong hopefully not tonight
0: Well, and and like we watched Nathan McKinnon last night playing for Colorado and a guy like, surely teams know how to play against him. They've seen him. So if if teams can figure out how to shut down Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner, why can they not figure out how to shut down Nathan McKinnon? Well, people say, well, Nathan McKinnon figures it out. Well, why can the Leaf guys, whoever? And look, they've got players. No one's arguing against the talent of Marner or the talent of Matthews. They've got players. It's just somehow... You're right. It seems when it gets right down to being tight time and pressure time, year after year, they disappear. I don't know if that's a personal thing. I don't know if that's a team thing. I don't know what it is. But for whatever reason, it seems to consistently happen. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right,
3: Scott. I I can't figure it out for the life of me. Uh, You know, two players who finish in the top five of scoring who can't put the the puck in the net in the postseason. And, you know, I mean... There's other players on the team, and clearly guys like Jason Spezza have stepped up. And, we, you know, we saw uh, you know, T.J. Brody's playing so well. Muzzin scored a couple of goals before his injury. There is that secondary scoring, but we really need the primary scoring. That's what we really need, these boys to step up. Not that they haven't, but for whatever reason, they haven't been able to score. And so that's what we're waiting for. Why this is happening, cannot figure it out. It's happened through the years. We've seen great teams of the 60s. We saw some in the late 70s. 90s with uh, with Gilmore 2003 those sort of things every year it was we're just a player away this year it seems as though we've got the players and yet here we are struggling against the fourth place team all points to Montreal who are a terrific hockey team and play Toronto very uh, very well but the pundit said four game sweep five games it'll be over in six well here we are fighting for our lives with the seventh game on hand
0: See, I'm going to disagree with you on one point there. I don't think Montreal is a terrific hockey team. I think Montreal has a fantastic goalie when he's on, which is truly the case. And I think they're a team that Toronto should have dismembered and eviscerated and disemboweled in four or five games. And they were up until game four, they were doing all of that stuff. And then for whatever reason, they just decided, okay, that's enough of playing well. Let's just give it to them. Let's just stop doing what we're doing well. Well, candidly, I was being generous. I've got friends who are <laughs> Canadian fans.
3: Uh, they, they're, they're a good, solid team. They did play us during the regular season quite well, although we, we, uh, we—hello, the Maple Leaf fans who are calling themselves "we," you know. But anyway, the the Maple Leafs earned more than their uh, share of points here. It was a it was a good season series. But you're right. We should have the Leafs should have been able to to take the Canadians. Price has been unconscious. He's been outstanding, as we knew he would be, but we didn't know what he was going to be like after the layoff from his concussion. So, so here we go, and here we are at Game 7, and it's anybody's game at this point. And one team will go home, and the other team will move on to play Winnipeg.
1: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Let's start with the best. Let's be optimistic here not the end we know what the end result best case scenarios for the leafs and if you're a fan that would be that they win but as this game gets going what's the best case scenario realistically for the leafs
3: well that they find this passion that seems to have been wavered the last uh, wavering the last couple of games that they find it and they decide that you know here we are it's do or die and they start to to take the play to canadians from the opening face-off and they're able to put a couple past uh, carry Price fairly early, and then they can play with a lead. And they are very comfortable playing with a lead. When they're playing from behind, it's a much more difficult task for them. So that would be wonderful. Now it's 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 great to have a template like that. It has to be executed. That's the problem at this point. But I think what we'll look for is is a team that'll come storming out and and uh, you know, shot out of a cannon, and and both sides are are going to come out and. It's going to be a hell of a game and that's the, the best thing for us, us all us fans of course the result at the end will be the best thing for one team or the other
0: right and and if you're talking best case scenario and you're a leaf fan i think simply just showing up at the start of the game and not yeah. being swarmed by the canadians like the last two games would be best case scenario now worst case scenario for the Leafs, and let me, let me I'll throw one at you, and then you jump from here. I think the worst-case scenario starts the same way we just talked about as the best-case scenario, and that is the Leafs come out flying but can't score a goal on Carey Price, and then Montreal gets like two shots like in overtime last game, and a funny one goes in, and suddenly the Leafs, all the air just goes out of their balloon, and now they're just completely deflated and figuring we can't win this game. Well, and you took the words right out of my mouth. Deflated would be exactly that. It just seems you know they can pepper
3: carry price. He can he can step in front of those uh, those pucks, and yet. You know, a, a single goal, whether it's a fluky goal or not, a single goal can take away the confidence and then all of a sudden the game plan has to change. And, and that's exactly it. Playing from behind, having to, to play catch up. And that's a tough game to play for anybody. And it seems to be particularly tough for the Leafs at this particular time. So we can only hope they come charging out of the, out of the chute and they score that goal early and, and often. And we can move on from there,
0: but looking forward to a great game. I'll say this, No, nobody wants an injury, ever. For any player on either team, nobody wants an injury. I will think, though, that if any player in tonight's game gets injured with 550 frontline medical workers in the stands, they will have the best <laughs> medical care in the history of professional sports. Imagine if John Tavares had gone down with the injury in this game. you would have had 35 neurosurgeons on the ice with him at the same time. I love um, the scenario. <laughs> the same with Muzzin. <laughs> we would have loved to have had him there and back in the game tonight. But uh, Yeah, everyone just... Put pours out of the stands onto the ice. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, so is this game, you, you mentioned that there are some players who have been kind of in the crosshairs, and I think that's totally fair. Is this game a referendum on Mitch Marner?
3: I don't know that it's a referendum on him by any means, but I do think that he'll, he'll have to to uh, duck the, the slings and arrows through the course of the summer again, and people will question whether he's tough enough, whether he's, he's playoff ready enough he's, he's great in the regular season is he too soft is he is he too afraid of the competition too afraid of being hit by the the competition his game seems to have changed nevertheless he's he's swarming he's 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 playing a good defensive forward role he's he's forechecking well he's just not getting the breaks and some of those that happen during the course of the season just aren't happening right now <clears throat> same with matthews hitting a goal post or setting the puck wide or whatever, these things didn't happen quite so frequently during the regular season. They're happening now. It just has to change. But I do think that uh, people will question. The bandwagon will get a little bit lighter um, through the course of the next little while, giving up on the team. our Us loyalists will, hey, here we go next year. But people will question guys like whether Riley is, is doing what he needs to do and certainly whether Matthews and Marner are as well and, and whether Joe Thornton should come back again. And, and that's a very valid question
0: as well. But there will be a lot of questions over the next several months, should the Leafs not win? I, I think Mitch Marner made one of the colossal errors ever the other day after the last game. Not, I'm not even talking about on the ice. The, they, the Leafs were terrible for most of the game. And when Mitch Marner came out after the game and said, hey, we just we didn't come ready to play, Oh, yeah. And that was the same line that was said for the year before and the year before that and the year before that, and we were always going to learn from it. Somebody should have pulled Mitch Marner aside and said, I don't care what you say in your press conference. Don't say we didn't come ready to play and we've got to learn from it. Because honestly, that that to me, when you're being paid, what, $10 million, $10.2 million, something like that, that is the most unbelievably antagonizing line to fans, I think, that you could have possibly spoken inexcusable, candidly. Now, it's the
3: cliches that roll off their tongues so easily after a game or after a period or whatever, but you never say that. You you stand up for your team one way or another. Hey, you're, you've you're being paid to be ready. Game in and game out. Sometimes you're going to be a little bit tired. Some, you've got to be out there to play and give it everything you've got every single game. And, and so to say that is inexcusable. Is it a, a, a young person's mistake? Perhaps. I don't know.
0: But, but the fact is you, you can't say that stuff at all. Uh, we, got to, we only have 20 seconds left. So very quickly, uh, Kyle Dubas, is he under any fire right now or do you think most Leaf fans go, no, he did everything he had to do to put the team on the ice. That's, that's how I see it. He did everything they wanted. Yeah, I, have to I agree this- with you, Scott. I, you know, he's, he's been a terrific
3: coach since he came on after Babcock. He... He's made some changes, some were questionable, but but the fact was he, you know, as far as uh, ice time and things of that sort, but he's done a great job so far. It's the guys on the ice that have to execute now, and it's out of his
0: hands. He's done everything he can possibly do. He now needs the guys in blue and white to execute. I know you're not a drinker, but somewhere nearby, just in case, do you have a, <laughs> a bottle of whiskey ready to go, depending on how tonight goes? I've got, instead of my usual double-double coffee, I'm taking it black. You know, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Mainlining the caffeine. Uh, Kevin Shea, by the way, if um, if the Leafs win tonight and you're feeling like you're, you know, really excited about it, uh, go and find Voices in Blue and White, Pride and Passion for the Maple Leafs, or any of the other books that he's written, excellent books on the Leafs and hockey. You can find them all over the place. And if uh, the Leafs don't win and you're depressed, well, read them anyway. Maybe you'll feel better. I don't know. Uh, (laughs) Kevin Shea,
3: always love having you. Oh, it's great to chat with you as well. And you're such a a great host as well. Thank you very much. Go Leafs, go.
1: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Today is National
1: Autonomous Vehicle
0: Day, uh, which, of course, I didn't know there was such a thing either. So don't feel badly for that one. Don't feel badly that you forgot to get someone a card for National Autonomous Vehicle Day. But a couple of years ago, I had my next guest on the show to talk about where we are, where we were at that time, where we are in the world of the self-driving car. This has been, well, I mean, how long has it been now that we were supposed to be having self-driving cars. I mean, the Jetsons, was back, that was when, when were they? The 60s, 70s, that cartoon? And surely by now, self-driving cars, just like our own little planes that we fly around in, that, that was all going to be part of our life. Well, not exactly. Not exactly. We still don't have our streets and our roads and our highways filled with cars driven by cars while we recline and read a book and sleep and do whatever else. That's still not the case. So where are we in the whole self-driving car thing? Christoph Czarnecki, Dr. Christoph charnecki is the professor of electrical and computer engineering at the University of Waterloo, where he runs that university's Intelligent Systems Engineering Lab. And he is a co-leader of an autonomous vehicle project that that university has. He joins us now. Thanks for doing this tonight. Really appreciate it. Hello. Pleasure to be here. I was reading today uh, a piece online that says that Germany has passed legislation that will be allowing self-driving cars by the year 2022. So by next year, Germany will have these, apparently, on the road. How close are we to that?
4: Uh, Well, actually, Germany has been uh, enacting some legislation over the last couple of years, and they uh, started with Level 3, I think, three years ago and they've been just adding some more levels to the um, loss. But I would say that, um, you know, we still have to wait at least until the end of the decade to start seeing some significant impact of this technology. And the rollout will take uh, several decades, maybe 30 years.
0: Why? Well, I mean, now, problem. Yeah. yeah, I, I was going to say, it's it's obviously, this is a really tough one because it's not just that we're trying to, create the technology that would allow for a car to drive itself, but it's all the other cars that would be on the road that would be driving themselves that all have to work in conjunction.
4: right and and I guess uh, you know one way to to think about it is that um, th- there's been amazing um, breakthroughs in in AI and robotics technology that that allowed engineers to build prototypes within relatively short period of time. so you know, coming out of uh, academic research when uh, Google picked up this this topic um, with the self-driving Google car um, they um, essentially uh, were able to demonstrate driving on the roads uh, pretty much uh, yeah, self-driving uh, within two three years uh, the trouble is that then perfecting it to a point where you can actually and trust lives uh, of people and uh, allow you know, the, the driver to be completely removed um, from the from the control of the vehicle uh, that uh, turned out to be the, the most difficult part um so oh. you know like doing 99 percent of the job is easy oh well uh, now we know how to do it but doing the last one percent of the job and making it safe and safer than than humans and that these systems will have to be at least uh, 10 times, 100 times safer than humans. Otherwise, we won't trust them. Uh, that is a problem that still will probably occupy us for another maybe 10 years until we perfect it.
0: So if we'd, if there was only one car that was going to be on the road, right, if there was not, if, we, if if you could just find an empty road and have one car, could right now we have the technology for that car to be able to drive on the road by itself?
4: Well, we, we already have... Um, deployments and uh, like I, I would say um, you know, the, the um, prominent example of that is it's in Arizona where Waymo has started autonomous uh, uh, taxi service last uh, fall um, and so today you can actually book a ride in one of these taxis and they come and pick you up without a driver. So that exists on the road. The, the, the trouble is that uh, replicating it in um, in other places, is the challenge, right? So um, these uh, um, vehicles in in, uh, in Arizona have uh, you know very good weather, perfect uh, road marking, uh, you know, wide wide roads, and, and they operate only in certain areas. Um, now doing this downtown, you know, San Francisco, downtown Toronto, uh, Hamilton, uh, in winter, in you know all sorts of uh, conditions and traffic conditions this is where we're still lacking.
0: The work that's going on though right now to work towards this, is this a, is every car manufacturer working on their own version of this or because this seems to be more of a software thing, is it more that the software developers are working on this and the car people are saying, let us know when you figure something out and we can put it into our vehicles?
4: It's a mix. So um the, the backers of that—it's on one hand side, uh, technology companies like, uh, for example, uh, Google is one of them uh, investing. Uh, and, uh, but also we have traditional OEMs like, for example, GM, Toyota, who are investing in this technology. And there's several um, large developments um, that are still ongoing. Uh, we had many more startups maybe you know even five years ago. They're still startups today, but um, the serious contenders are, are really these big companies. It's estimated, some um, research companies have estimated that these big uh, developers like Google or, or Cruise GM will have to spend another uh, 6 to $10 billion by the end of the decade to actually uh, bring it properly to the market uh, so that they actually start getting some benefits um, and, and return on investment. So. And I've been burning uh, anywhere from 500 million to a billion per year, uh, each of these big projects.
0: I know it's For not the exact, exact same thing.
4: 10, 10, 15 years, yeah.
0: Yeah, no. And I know it's not the same thing, but I'm thinking back to when Apple came out with the first iPhone 15 years ago now. I can't remember how long ago it was when the first iPhone appeared. It was not very long after that iPhone came out that we saw a series of other manufacturers come out with their own version of a smartphone. Now, it wasn't the same exactly, obviously, but it was similar enough. It kind of did the same thing. Is that what's going to happen with the autonomous cars? Is that once someone is able to make the one that really works, that we're going to see a ton of different manufacturers come out with their own? Or when someone comes out with the first one that really works, is everybody just going to latch on to that one, all the manufacturers, and go with that?
4: Well, solving this problem in the end means building a platform uh, it's it's not just enabling one car to drive you know itself but it's it's about being able to learn you know all these each, each of these vehicles will be collecting data getting into new situations and sharing that information and improving the system for all, all the other vehicles that run on that on the same platform so I expect that there will be a mix there will be probably a small number of, of um, really advanced platforms and they will divide up the market and so some companies might be licensing uh, those um and you even today you see that many, several oems got together it, it, it's uh it's rarely the case that it would be just a single oem developing its own platform because it's such a costly and, and difficult problem so uh, in the end there will be a, a couple of these platforms um dividing the market yeah
0: The biggest thing for me, and and, I mean, clearly I'm not someone who works in this. And so I'm looking at this from, you know, the huge picture without really knowing, but the biggest challenge I would think is that to do this, you have to have an autonomous car that is prepared for anything. Uh, the, The program has to be prepared to deal with almost anything. Anything is an incredibly high bar to try and prepare for any possible scenario.
4: Yeah, you absolutely um, spot on uh, with this. And uh, being prepared on, on uh, you know, to, to face anything means maybe in some of these cases the car can intelligently handle the case, but at, as a minimum bar, it has to handle the case safely. Um, so, for example, you know, in a worst case, um, just decide to stop um, itself, uh, maybe you know, safely out of the line of traffic, um, but it has to do it and recognize. Sufficiently, with sufficient precision and accuracy, what what's happening around, and assess the situation, so that it can actually guarantee safety. And it has to do it, um, you know, orders of magnitude better than a human. And um, humans today roughly cause um, a deadly accident every hundred million of uh, every hundred million kilometers driven, or miles driven, actually. Um, so it's a pretty high bar.
0: And yet, you know, even when I say that it has to be prepared for anything, there's always something. I mean, humans, there's always something we're not going to anticipate, right? I mean, like it, it seems uh, it it seems unfathomable to think, okay, we've covered everything now. There's nothing else that could possibly happen here. There's all as soon as we say there's nothing else that could happen, something will happen. Titanic couldn't sink, right? I mean, there's there's always something that will come up later on that we say, oh, hadn't really thought of that one. And again, the challenge is. If that's the thing that comes up and someone dies it's a huge problem
4: yes and, and, and sadly this these things will be coming up however um, you know this, this is how we introduced technology in the past we will we will introduce this gradually um, you know when when we started uh, building bridges uh, some of the first bridges were, were collapsing but at some point we figured out uh, how to build bridges long before we actually had all the theory about uh, bridge building, and some of that perfection uh, has been, you know, perfect, uh, perfect, perfecting this the system of building bridges has has actually been in, improving over over centuries, um, and I and I believe that similar situation, a similar process will be will be happening here. Um, it's just engineering, right? So you see this, um, for example, that service in in Arizona, in a very specific um, region. That will be then replicated in a few other places, and the engineers will be learning from that. Um, and then we'll be improving the system, and when they're confident, they'll be introducing uh, it more and more places. And, and gather data as, as we go, so mm-hmm. that we actually can, uh, with the data, we can show that, okay, you know, accidents can happen, uh, and they will happen because these vehicles will have to interact also with human drivers and, and, and human other road users like you know, cyclists and pedestrians. Uh, but that in the end, uh, these these things, um, you know, through data we would see um, are safer than, than humans. And um, I think that this is attainable, but it's still a long-term uh, goal.
0: I was going to ask you if this is going to be requiring a convincing of the public, um, but I, I think my question is more, I, I think there are people who probably will be very excited about the technology and will be eager to buy one of these cars when and if they become available. I think that, tell me if I'm wrong, the public that is going to need to be convinced of this are the ones who aren't driving these cars or who aren't sure about it yet. It's not the people who are willing to buy into the technology. Before they're on the road, we're going to have to convince the people who are the doubters.
4: Um, yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, interestingly, um, there, there's, there, there are risks on both sides. There's also risk of, of, of attracting these systems. And It has been shown that people who have been given uh, rides in these vehicles they um they actually are very reassured because the vehicles are working in a repeatable fashion they drive very carefully um they they are very predictable uh at least some of these these prototypes that exist today uh and they are very quickly starting to trust them sometimes we'll be trusting too much and you know that's been ha- happening for example with with systems like the the you know, the even though it's not a self driving car um uh, but uh it's it's very easy to start over trust over trusting system so it it will have to also come hand in hand with regulation uh and I think that uh, you know a big part of of introduction of this technology will be more through um, uh, automatic um, uh, taxis um, rather than owning these vehicles because owning these vehicles with the technology um, that's in it and trying to maintain it is just going to be too costly for for private users. I think getting to, to a point where you can just uh, uh, you know, own such a vehicle and, and making sure that you can properly maintain it, uh, I, I don't see this happening anytime soon. Uh, mm-hmm. On the other hand, um, you can think of these um, taxis almost like like airline operators that operate these fleets and make sure that they're properly maintained, that all the maps are up to date and so on. Uh, and then you have also other applications like, for example, um, uh, trucks and and um, and you know, like delivery, uh, delivery vans and so on. And I think uh, maybe even these will be um, some of the first um, really you know business relevant applications of this technology.
0: A couple of minutes ago, I mentioned Apple, obviously using the example of the iPhone, but Apple now says, and I was just reading this, that they want to get into the automated car game as well. Is that good? Is it, is the more companies that are wanting to invest and investigate and work on this, the more the merrier, or would it be better to have a few that are concentrated?
4: Well, I, I believe that, uh, you know, it, it's a, it's a field, it's a kind of experiment where, um, I think it's, it's good to have many ideas and, and, um, you know, companies that, that have, um, both the, um, you know, intellectual backing in terms of, uh, engineers and also the financial, uh, backing to innovate. Um, I think it's, 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 um, a place where we can still come up with many different ideas and, and see what, what will work. Um, you know, a lot of these ideas will be weeded out, um, you know, Apple has actually tried to get into that uh, several times. They had, uh, you know, they usually run this very stealth kind of operation, uh, but they've been multiple weeks of a time, uh, and they hit some hiccups with um, trying to develop uh, the technology. Uh, we'll see where that goes, um, you know, whether in the end the focus will be on, on electric car and, and the sort of uh, consumer side of things, um, you know, to what extent they'll be Actually, developing their own self-driving capabilities—that's that's not clear. Uh, but I think, um, yeah, we definitely need to explore a range of um, a range of technologies and ideas. Yeah.
0: Just before I let you go, uh, last time you were on talking about this, I think it was a couple of years ago. How much has changed in two years as we get towards the idea of an autonomous car?
4: Well, I, I think that um, engineers were kind of over. Um, Maybe um optimistic in the past uh, because of the early successes um, now the industry has has realized how difficult it is, and there have been steady progress uh, you know essentially kind of incremental um, improvements um, to systematically address the various uh, remaining issues and uh, work work out all sorts of kinks and so we with you know uh, having this this um, um, this um, autonomous taxi service in, in Arizona, without actually a driver, and, and that's being approved and 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 open to public. I think that's a that's quite some achievement. Um, so uh, we see progress, but now generally, uh, I think everyone understands that it's going to take another, um, you know, maybe a decade until we can say that this technology is ready to be more widely rolled out, and um, that's the main. Realization. And then the fact that there's um, just need to invest a, a lot more money um, uh, because all these engineers that need to work on that will be
1: costing a lot of money. Dr. About- Christoph
0: Czarnecki from the University of Waterloo always appreciate the time. Thanks for taking a few minutes tonight. Yeah. Thank you, Scott.
1: The Scott Radley Show, weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.